Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, this is Bill Grobe with Ogletree Deacons in our Tampa office, and this is In the Break Room, and today it's In the Break Room with Bill and my colleague Tiffany Stacy. Tiffany's in our San Antonio office, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the report on Governor Cuomo that was done by the New York Attorney General. Tiffany, if you'll introduce yourself, we'll get started. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me to join you today. Bill invited me to speak and sent me the 168-page report um, regarding the investigation of Governor Cuomo. And reading that report was very eye-opening, but also very timely as I work through investigations right now for clients increasingly focused on sexual harassment. So I'm excited to visit today about some of the revelations from that report. You're right, 168 pages, right? But that that's just the substance of the report. That's the writing. The the evidence over 300 pages of evidence that went with the report. I, I haven't been able to look at all of that, but it's just so voluminous and surprising. If your behavior goes unchecked in the workplace, then now is the time that folks are going to say that's enough. Enough is enough. Uh, started with Harvey Weinstein, and, and now um, the Me Too movement has progressed, and some of these anachronistic, uh, completely unacceptable behaviors just have to stop. And, and I think that's what this report is all about. And, and one of the interesting things about the report was, you know, talking about him, you know, mentioning to people on his staff about the idea of finding him a girlfriend. And I still remember, again, back in the COVID crisis, when he was on TV, that the news organizations were making note of the fact that he was a bachelor and, and women were writing to him um, to, to say, hey, you know, I'm available too. But it's interesting how, how things change and how, you know, looking at, at um, this report through the eyes of the individuals who investigated it, it's very clear that they felt that there was so much toxicity in the culture in, in the governor's organization that it really had to be stopped and something had to be done. And so, so we have allegations against uh, Governor Cuomo by at least 11 women that are documented in the report. And, and I think this shows really how powerful movements like Me Too and Time's Up captured the requirement that certain behaviors uh, both in and out of the workplace simply won't be tolerated. And I wondered, you know, I'm looking at some of the allegations and I think, gosh, you know, taken in a vacuum, right, a single allegation of someone having an embrace when they meet or a kiss on the cheek or forehead when they meet. Forehead's a little bit more difficult, lips uh, a lot more difficult unless you are real um, familiarity with the individual. And even then, I would say, Heck no, that's that's a very private moment and should be handled in private with people who you are truly intimate with, uh, certainly not people who are your employees or uh, folks that, that you are casual acquaintances. But, I mean, can you think of times that, that you've been in the same situations where someone may have 
you know, depending on their culture or depending on, on what they felt was appropriate, acted inappropriately to you, but where you understood, well, they probably didn't think what they were doing was inappropriate. A lot of these allegations, some of them, if you view them in isolation, uh, there was an example of Governor Cuomo referring to mingle mamas. And I didn't even know what that meant. I still don't Um, know what that means. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Something about ladies who have children that also like to, I guess, mingle with other people. Uh, But nothing about that comment in and of itself is inherently sexually suggestive. Again, if someone said that to me, I'm not really sure I would have any impression from that. And so it's really the totality of what was described, coupled with the fact that Governor Cuomo has the utmost power in the eyes of many of these individuals. You know, certainly when I was a younger associate and I worked with other associates and we were single, there were conversations about dating and meeting other people. But that was really in the context of peers and a context of familiarity and comfort. And never once were any of those comments construed or intended as an implicit statement that I want to date you or I'm interested in you. It became more friendly conversations that were appropriate for the time and the context of who was having that conversation. But when you take that same kind of discussion and you put it in the context of a much older gentleman, such as Governor Cuomo, who is in a position of power, having that conversation with a younger lady, then yeah, that could be something that's misconstrued and could be quite offensive or intimidating to the young lady that that heard that comment from him. That's the thing that brings up a point that I think is so important. And I think what you need to keep in mind and what everyone should keep in mind is you don't know what the life experience is of the person that you're speaking with, right? You don't know the triggers that that person may have and may hold based on things that have happened in his or her life. You don't know what has happened in that life that has brought him or her to the point in time where they're now interacting with you. And so there are triggers, certainly triggers that that folks may associate with either past behavior or past inappropriate conduct from folks in power. And and you mentioned it, right? I mean, certainly the physical stuff, that that, um, is something that they're kissing on the lips, someone you don't even know or someone that you have little or no familiarity with. So the physical stuff, the, the embracing and, and even the extended embraces. But I can certainly think, just like you did, of situations with regard to the discussions, right? Personal relationships, asking someone in a flip or offhanded manner, you know, gosh, I need help finding a girlfriend. Can you help me out? And, and one of them uh, talked about him discussing the downside of, oh, do you really want to get married? Because things change after you get married or, or talking to his younger aide about would you date an older man being being somewhat suggestive. And, and we see this sort of crescendo of non-physical conduct that taken alone on an individual basis in a vacuum 
well, maybe it's not so offensive, but taken in this this big mosaic of what was happening in the culture of the governor's office uh, clearly can be construed as as offensive. And I can I can even remember for myself working at another place and and we had an older administrative individual and and she was very friendly. Um, Certainly I I truly, truly believe there was no ill intent or intent to to make me uncomfortable, but she used to touch people a lot when she talked to people, including me. And and she was always, whenever she would speak to me, she'd have her her hand on me. And I would think in my mind, I'd be like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm being touched. I'm being touched. I shouldn't be being touched. It bothered me. But I thought, well, you know, I, gosh, I know that that it's all positive intent, certainly no intent to make me feel uncomfortable. So I would have simply cast that aside and not have mentioned it to the individual. But certainly in this culture, right, where you have uh, someone in, in the absolute position of power, then, you know, not only were people uncomfortable to mention it to the governor, but they were uncomfortable to report it because they felt like reporting it would uh, a fall on deaf ears and b draw the governor's ire and and so we find a, a a very different dynamic when you talk about it in the aggregate of all of the the instances that were discussed in the report with the, this generation i call it a new generation of sexual harassment right the first generation was meritor savings versus vinson the second generation of sexual harassment claims was widely referred to as uh, Anita Hill during the Anita Hill uh, hearings, and that became more of the uh, non-quid pro quo, more of the, um, the you know hostile work environment type claims. And then now this is sort of the third generation, which started with Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. But it's really we've moved into a third generation part B, where we're not only looking at the behavior, but we're we're really focusing on the environment that is enabling this kind of behavior. I agree. I think that for quite a period of time, there was a significant focus associated with the Me Too movement and, of course, COVID and everything related to that has has taken command as it had to for safety reasons and continuity of business reasons. But as things are, are somewhat returning to normal, if you will, I think I've noticed an increase in the number of internal complaints being made of inappropriate comments or behavior, or like you said, an overall boys club, this is a boys club environment, or, you know, this is the culture of what I'm working in. And it is now, I think, more accepted and encouraged to bring it up right away instead of just tolerating it. Even when I look back, my husband and I were watching Silence of the Lambs the other night. And real feel good movie. Yes, I know, right before bed. Um, but watching that movie and just the probably insignificant ways in which the female FBI agent, Clarice Starling, how she was dismissed or marginalized or cast to the side simply because of her gender. And it probably did not even stand out at that time. 
you know, if you're watching the movie at that time, you probably would not have noticed it. But now, 20 or 30 years later, however long ago that movie came out, but now watching it, you really notice those slights and what you mentioned, the overall environment, the toxic environment that can be created that hopefully is not occurring in most workplaces today. But the Governor Cuomo example is a very real reminder that it does still happen and by people who really should know better. And that's a great point. And what the governor said, the governor said exactly what you said, right? Grabbing the face and kissing was an old fashioned and traditional behavior. And uh, they basically blamed it as a characteristic of his generation. And, and I do believe there is something to that. I, I certainly have seen uh, members of, of older generations who are engaging in conduct like sweetie and honey and you know, still using words that are, are truly unacceptable in the workplace, but not giving it a second thought. That just goes to show that we can never really determine with any sort of uh, assurances as to what someone's motivations may be. But that emphasizes, I think, the need for training and education in the workplace. I remember when I first started working uh, in a law firm setting and, and, and not this firm, but, um, you know, working with some older gentlemen nearing their retirement. And, you know, they did refer to me as sweetie or, uh, and, and it kind of took me aback, but at the same time, what am I to say as a young associate? And, and I just kind of brushed it off as that, is their generation. Even that makes me cringe right now to, to know that, you know, even when I hear it, I think, oh, don't don't say that. That's that's not cool anymore. And never really was cool, but now it's especially not cool. Yeah. And I think women are just uh, are, are definitely feel more empowered to speak up and to state what is acceptable or not. And as an employer, it can be challenging because you receive a complaint that alleges various inappropriate comments or behaviors and looking at it from a morale and company perspective, this is still not behavior that we want to happen in the workplace. And the sooner we address it and the sooner we try to be proactive in changing the mindset and changing the behaviors, the less likely we're going to have a more significant issue. And I agree with that. And, and I think that as we sort of put all of this information together in, in the mosaic and, and the discussion that we've had about the content of uh, the Governor Cuomo report, and we look at, at the culture and certainly the, the idea of power being very intimidating. And so I think if we talk about what we want our listeners to, to take away from this, I mean, we want to look at when these complaints are made. All of us now have policies in place, anti-retaliation policies, anti-harassment policies, anti-bullying policies. And one uh, very, very important component of that, of that policy is an investigation and, and the, that you have the system in place to perform that investigation. And, and so it's so important that the higher up that the individual who's accused of misbehavior is, you know, how much power 
does that individual have? The more power that individual has, then we may look differently at what would seemingly be innocuous behavior and look for patterns. Because if we look at the report, right, later on in the report where it summarizes the culture of the governor's office and the governor's inner sanctum, it talked a lot about words, using words like bullying, abusive environment, that the governor prized loyalty, which again was is very much associated with um, his generation, loyalty among everything else, above everything else, unflinching loyalty, they said, um, didn't feel like any prohibition against this kind of behavior would be enforced. And that instead, it was actually a culture that fostered a tendency, and I think they said that normalized, flirtatious, suggestive, and sex-based conduct. And so as we think about when we get these complaints and our clients get these complaints from individuals, I think we need to take a look at the outset at what is the position that the individual who's being accused is in. If it's a position of power, we may need to treat this investigation a little bit differently. If it's someone who is a leader, a company leader, whether it be in the C-suite or a high-level director or vice president, then we think about do we need to go outside of the organization to do an impartial investigation. You see that this one was done by the attorney general. Of course, the governor is, is claiming that it was very biased. But, you know, we have a lot of investigations. And, and I have just in the past week gotten requests for at least seven to eight investigations. Tiffany, I know you're performing investigations right now, but it's, you know, that's so important to know who the investigation should be done by. Should it be done internally or externally, and what are the benefits to doing it externally? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am appreciative that so many clients will reach out when a certain type of complaint is made or a complaint that does involve a higher level manager or executive, because those can be very tricky to navigate. You know, it's hard to convey a sense of fairness and unbiasedness when, let's say, a human resources director who is arguably insubordinate to a C-suite vice president, and that person is doing the investigation, how is that person really going to feel comfortable potentially reporting negative information about someone so senior to him or her. And those are the situations where it really makes sense to retain someone from the outside, whether that's one of us, whether it's, you know, another lawyer or HR consultant that we collaborate with to do the investigation. But that is what can instill a sense of of fairness to what is being done and that you know I've had to make rec- recommendations to clients that I know this is your top sales guy I know he's been with the company a long time but he has clearly violated your policies and if you keep him on this is a huge liability for the company basically you need to let him go that's an easier recommendation for me to make as an outsider than somebody in the company that 
has to face that individual every day or potentially reports to that person. And I think um, a, a thought that has occurred to me now that we are at least temporarily getting back into the workplace and going to some events, you have to think we went more than a year probably without significant interaction with colleagues, you know, in person. And so it, it almost behooves the employer, I think, to remind employees of expectations when we go to events or if we are at some sort of socializing mixer or anything like that, that I know it sounds silly. How would we have forgotten to, you know, that we shouldn't touch people or we shouldn't uh, make passes at people, but there's also this excitement just to be together again and perhaps drinking to excess and things happen. And so I think some of the complaints that we're getting right now are perhaps driven in part by the fact that we've not been together in so long and perhaps lost some of the standards that we once had in place for our conduct. It reminds me of, of Robert De Niro in The Untouchables, right? With things that he would call enthusiasms, enthusiasms. <laughs> we, want to, we want to control our enthusiasms when we're out yeah. there seeing people again in the workplace. And, and you're right. It is so exciting. I was so excited when I got to go back to my first HR meeting that was in person because it's just so great to see people again and to be among people. And, and you know, the points that you made, especially about the hierarchical relationship, right? You have someone who is subordinate or lower on, on the totem pole than the individual that's being investigated, especially if the person who it's, it's claimed to uh, be the alleged harasser is a CEO or a member of the board or, heaven forbid, the chairman of the board, right? These are things that, that it's very difficult, A, for you to, A, appear unbiased to the person who's made the complaint, and then, B, to be truly honest and, and forthright with the individual who is the subject of the complaint, unless you have, and I know a lot of great HR folks out there, I'm so fortunate to work with them, who would feel very comfortable going to the CEO and say, you know, dude, this is this is not acceptable. This is what we need to, need to do to change behavior and maybe even offer assistance in, in um, providing some type of support or training or something that would be helpful to the individual. I see a lot more training going on. I see a lot more training that's being required, right? Sexual harassment training in New York and California, other parts of the country. And, and why wouldn't you want to do it? You could do this in person or online, or you could just record uh, someone doing the training and then play it back for new hires. It really is not a huge investment to get this training done. But every time you give that training, right, you can give out that piece of paper at the end saying, you know, I've, I've attended this session um, and I have nothing to report at this time, right? You draw a line in the sand. And that way, you know that if, if somebody comes up and says, oh my gosh, this is happening for years, you pull out that piece of paper and say, well, gosh, you went to this training and you signed it and you said you had nothing to report. Why didn't you report it at that point in time? But it gives us the opportunity more so to keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening. And the other thing about the investigation that you mentioned, and, and we are doing so many more investigations, but you know, the thing about the investigation is privilege. You can do an investigation under the supervision of counsel, uh, inside counsel or outside counsel being done by outside counsel that will maintain privilege so long as you follow the Upjohn requirements, right? Um, and 
even when that investigation is done and the results are revealed, you can continue to maintain privilege unless you want to use that investigation or the results of that investigation to support the idea that either nothing happened, there's nothing to substantiate that something happened, or something did happen and we are taking action immediately to correct that, correct that behavior. And it really just gives you more arrows in your quiver by using an impartial investigator and, and maintaining that appearance of impartiality, uh, both to add credibility to the investigation and protect the results of that investigation under privilege. Right. Yeah, because we think about just from a basic legal standpoint, employers cannot control everyone's behavior. You just, you can't, you can't be every place at every time. And as the employer, your obligations are, of course, to provide the training, to provide outlets for individuals to bring forth concerns, whether anonymously or otherwise. And then, of course, doing that prompt investigation. Those are your defenses. Those are how you protect yourself. Yeah, and protect the company. And of course, investigation means something different depending upon the type of complaint. Uh, some can be very detailed and, and involve many witness interviews. And, you know, others don't necessarily warrant that level of investigation. But uh, one thing, though, is we found is we can do a lot of interviews by Zoom. And COVID-19 kind of opened the door to potentially being able to respond to complaints much more quickly and that you can schedule Zoom interviews with witnesses that are potentially in many different places and be able to reach some sort of conclusion more promptly that you, than you might have before this heavy reliance upon video conferencing. And that's exactly right. And the other thing that it's done is that as we see states and, and the, the federal jurisdictions, you know, continuing to provide protections. In fact, I believe Texas is expanding their protections for sexual harassment, expanding the statute of limitations on those claims. We find some jurisdictions that are actually criminalizing some behavior associated with sexual harassment. And then other you know, jurisdictions, as we've talked about, requiring and mandating this sexual harassment training. As we, as we see more and more of this, these investigations, as you said, uh, can be done via Zoom. So we're still seeing someone face to face, which I think is very important in an investigation. But not only can we do things more effectively, but we can do things in these investigations more efficiently and more economically because we don't have people who are required to travel from place to place, especially for our uh, clients who have multi-jurisdictional offices in, in many different places. And the other thing that I was super excited about is that I just uh, read an email from one of our colleagues um, who is now going to be the chair of our investigation practice group, which is so important that you know our firm and other firms are doing to, um, to centralize the, the real practitioners who are great investigators in one group so that we know who the technocrats are in the firm that can do this. And we're able to contact the individuals that have that expertise. And like yourself, who I know does a lot of investigations and, and have been kind enough to do investigations um, with me and, and some of the clients that we service. And so this is this has really been great, Tiffany. Uh, it, we're uh, uh, getting short on time and, and attention span. So 
uh, I want to try to wrap us up, but uh, it's been incredible to do this podcast with you. Thank you so much for being available. I think if you read this report, although it's probably good therapy for insomnia because it's 168 pages, parts of it are riveting uh, to talk about some of these um, experiences and behaviors that we would otherwise maybe not give a second glance to, but look at it in that that totalitarian circumstance and the totality of the circumstances. And so hopefully uh, we've provided some good information. I want to thank you again, Tiffany, for being on this podcast. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again in the break room with Bill and Tiffany or with some other of our colleagues. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.